And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. We live in just a day, a time, where the doctrine of self-esteem is kind of assumed to be a basic Christian belief. Some might go far as to say it's a doctrine. Uh, not only Christian psychologists, but many other popular Bible teachers emphasize, emphasize that you must learn to love and accept yourself before you can truly love God and love others. And on the other side of the coin, you've got those like Jonathan uh, or John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and many other distinguished uh, theologians who denounce self-love and self-esteem as being radically opposed to biblical humility. Now, the Bible clearly teaches self-denial, not self-esteem. John Broger, writing on this theme, wrote a book. It was titled Self-Confrontation. Now, don't you just want to go out and buy that book? Right? It seems a little jarring in our day of this feel-good-about-yourself Christianity. And people wonder, why would I want to confront myself? Am I not supposed to love myself and feel good about myself? <clears throat> Self-confrontation seems about as much fun as getting a root canal. But the Word of God, and Jesus in particular, confront us just continually with our sin. It's safe to say that if you're not using Scripture to confront uh, your life, then you're probably not growing in Christ. Scripture is given for reproof, for correction. Paul tells us that in Romans. When he exhorts Timothy to preach the word, he goes on to say, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience. Why? Because you got to do it again and again and again with instruction. If a builder came onto a construction site and it's cluttered with an old building that had been torn down, well, before he can begin that new building, what does he have to do? He has to clear off that site. He has to get rid of that old rubble. Well, our lives are littered, and I mean littered with the rubble of sin. And the Lord continually has to clean out that old rubble, that old life of sin, so that new life of holiness can be placed. So his word constantly confronts us with areas where we need to judge our sin. Now, Jesus was invited to dinner at the home of a leader of the Pharisees. So this was a, this was a bigwig, right? a leader of the Pharisees. He accepts the invitation but he was hardly a polite dinner guest. <laughs> it was on the Sabbath, and he no sooner walked in the door than he saw right in front of him this man with dropsy. You know what dropsy is? If you've got a study Bible, it probably told you. It's edema, okay? It's a, it's a swelling of the joints or even the whole body. It's usually a heart issue or something wrong with your kidneys, and you build up fluid, and you swell. You can swell like a balloon. Well, Jesus could have told the man, come back this evening, Come back after sundown and I can heal you. Then the Sabbath would have been over. But he doesn't do that. He healed the man. And then he verbally confronts his critics. Now, as if, as if that were not enough for one day, the Lord proceeds to rebuke the dinner guests who sought out the places of honor at the table. And while everybody's jaws just gape wide open going, what is this guy doing? He proceeds to rebuke the host for inviting the wrong people. 
And then one of the guests, he tries to kind of ease the tension by exclaiming, blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Amen, brother. No, Jesus says, well, he goes on to tell a parable. We'll look at it next week, Lord willing, uh, to show that many of the Jews are going to be excluded from this feast, while many of the Gentiles will be brought to it. So Jesus was very confrontational. I mentioned this just a few weeks ago, that somehow we have the idea that Jesus was just a, a nice person that everybody liked wrong most people hated him most people hated him well if you hang out with him very long you're going to find him confronting your sin whatever it is he does it out of love for a good reason he confronts our sin so that we will inherit rewards for all eternity now our text reveals three areas where Jesus confronts our sins. And before we look at these, I want to point out that Jesus accepted this dinner invitation for, or accepted dinner invitations from unbelievers. Uh, but he didn't just go and he didn't just socialize. That wasn't his purpose. He went with a mission. He was always doing his father's business. Now, if you socialize with unbelievers, make sure that you go with the same sense of mission, prepared to speak up for the Lord. Otherwise, you're going to end up compromising your faith, maybe even being drawn back into the worldly behavior that you used to be engaged in. So, first on our list is Jesus confronts our sin of rebellious hypocrisy. Excuse me, religious hypocrisy. Luke doesn't say so, and, and because of that, we can't be totally sure, but there is some reason to believe that the Pharisees planted this man with dropsy there in front of a Jesus. Uh, they wanted to see whether he would violate their rules against healing on the Sabbath. And Luke says, they were watching him closely. The verb has the nuance of um, lurking or lying in wait to catch someone doing something that maybe they're not supposed to be doing. So they were out to get him. Now, Jesus didn't disappoint them. <laughs> he took up the challenge head on and he asked them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, this put them in a bind, to put them kind of on the horns of a dilemma. If they said that healing is permitted, well, that, that conceded his point, and that raised problems about their traditions, which they had added to the law of Moses. So they don't do that. If they had said healing is not permitted, they come across as rather uncaring, don't they? And besides, if they had invited this man with dropsy to be there, it really cast questions on their motives for them to say, no, healing is not allowed. So they keep silent. That seemed like the best course of action for them. Now note the simple manner that Luke reports this healing, this miracle. Jesus took hold of the man, healed him, and sent him away. Now normally dropsy would take a few days to subside. You know what you get for dropsy today a lot? Lasix. You know what that makes you do, don't you? I won't tell you. Nothing is said about the man's or the witness's reaction to just being healed. Still, he goes from being bloated, he has this edema, he's dropsy, to being perfectly normal, gets up and walks out. But nobody reacts. Then Jesus follows up this miracle by asking them a rhetorical question to kind of underscore what scores point. He says, which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath? And Jesus is saying, if your son, or for that matter, even your ox falls into a well on the Sabbath, you wouldn't hesitate to pull him or it out, would you? Yet you want to let this man go on in his suffering. 
In other words, they cared more about their animals than they did about this man. Jesus was exposing their lack of love and their just religious hypocrisy. Now, there are many more characteristics uh, concerning hypocrisy than those listed here, but I'm going to point out five that come from our text. Number one, hypocrites study the word for ammunition against others, but they don't apply it to themselves. These men knew their Bibles. They knew the law of Moses forward and backward. They were the guardians of the faith waiting to catch someone else in error. Now, their aim in knowing the word was not to confront themselves, but to have ammo to use against others. Now, they're watching Jesus closely, but they weren't watching themselves closely. They were waiting for him to violate their rules so they could just pounce on him, but they were not applying the law to themselves. Well, second, hypocrites target and they try to bring down anyone who confronts their sin with the word. Who did this, or why did this Pharisee invite Jesus to dinner? What do you think was his motive? From the evidence that we have, I suggest that it's not to learn from Jesus. It was not to find out if possibly he was right or he was wrong and Jesus was right. He invited Jesus to dinner to set him up to bring him down. He and his cronies were watching Jesus to try to trip him up. Now, I've been accused of being liberal simply because I don't preach from the King James Version. Um, Invariably, these people have really no idea of the scholarly issues involved. They just sit in judgment on any preacher who doesn't use the original King James. Truth be known, you couldn't read the original King James. I'm reading three different books right now that were written between 1604 and 1611. Y'all, you just need to get a book that old and look. They call it Old English for a reason. It ain't our English. It is hard to read. The letters are different. Anyway, these these folks just sit sit on sit on you in judgment if you don't use the King James. Now, if you were asked that person's I don't know, wife or children, are they, are they happy? Are they good at home? You might see some, you know, not happy faces when you ask that question. Well, third, hypocrites care more about their man-made rules than about being right before God in their hearts. These Pharisees couldn't care less about this hurting man. So what if he's suffering? Jesus has broken our rules. Now, hypocrites usually care more about external conformity than about inward righteousness. Now, they aren't concerned about whether uh, they please God in their thought lives. They just want everyone to follow the rules and, and about how they look and, and, and what they do. Now, if Jesus had just observed their Sabbath rules, they probably would have let him alone. But Jesus always dealt with heart issues, didn't he? Like having a pure thought life, being free from anger, and forgiving from the heart those who offend you. Well, number four, hypocrites bend the rules for their own purposes, but they apply them rigidly to others. These men would do what they had to do, Sabbath or no Sabbath. There were, there were ways to get around the rules if you needed to. A Sabbath day journey could be extended if you knew what to do so that you could travel wherever you wanted to go. They would get their own ox or their son out of a pit on the Sabbath, but no healing allowed on the Sabbath. I wonder what the host would have done if Jesus would have healed his wife or his son. Probably would have been allowed then. 
Well, fifth, hypocrites often ignore just overwhelming evidence in order to persist in their sin. Jesus powerfully and miraculously heals this man, but the Pharisees, they ignore the evidence. And this wasn't the first time this sort of thing had happened. Just just think back over Jesus' ministry. Uh, He's been at it now probably two, two and a half years. Well, he had cast a demon out of a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and that story had uh, spread widely. Um, He healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law on the Sabbath. He healed the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, but the Pharisees responded in rage, not just anger, rage. On the Sabbath, he had healed the woman bent over for 18 years. Remember, we covered that just a, just a few weeks ago. But the synagogue official was indignant. How dare you heal on the Sabbath? How much more evidence do they need to wake up and say, you know, maybe we're wrong and Jesus is right. This shows us just how deeply entrenched the sin of religious hypocrisy how deep it is, and how diligent we must be to root it out of ourselves when Jesus confronts it. Now, if you're not careful, it's easy to build a case to defend your point of view and ignore overwhelming biblical evidence that convicts you of your sin. God's Word applies to all of us, especially to those of us who teach and preach. John Calvin said it would be better for the preacher to break his neck going into the pulpit than for him not to be the first to follow God. Richard Baxter exhorted his fellow pastors to preach to yourselves the sermons which you study before you preach them to anyone else. The point is, to avoid hypocrisy, we must all allow the word to confront our sins and then to respond with repentance and obedience, not with hardness of heart. So the first thing that Jesus confronts is our sin of religious hypocrisy. Well, second, Jesus confronts our sin of selfish pride. This is verses 7 through 11. Now, in these verses, Jesus turns the tables. Instead of the Pharisees watching him, he is watching the Pharisees. But his motives were totally different from theirs. He wasn't watching them in order to trip them up, but to confront them with their sin of hypocrisy to lead them to repentance and be right before God. Now, hypocrisy and pride, they're related sins, are they not? Those who keep up outward appearances to impress others are invariably self-focused and proud. These men did what they did uh, to be noticed by others and, and to really gain honor for themselves. And Jesus shows them that the way of pride leads ultimately to disgrace. And the way of humility ultimately leads to reward. There in verse 11, he says, He who exalts himself will be, will be debased and whoever humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That could apply to this life, and many times it does, but it's not necessarily so. If a proud man makes it through this life without being humbled, then he is in for a rude awakening at the day of judgment. The proud who have trusted in themselves and their own good deeds, they're going to be brought low before God. Whereas the humble who have recognized their own sin, they've cried out to Jesus in mercy, they will be exalted to his eternal presence. Now when Jesus tells the dinner guests that they should seek out the lowest seats, he's not advocating a self-focused scheme as to how you can really end up in the best seat. Namely, by taking the worst seat. 
for a man to do that, he would still be operating out of pride. And that's, that's what Jesus is confronting here. Now, here's the issue. Before God, everyone ought to feel that the lowest place is the proper place for them. Uh, Travis Parks and I had a, had a really good discussion um, uh, what day? Thursday, I guess it was. Uh, concerning, concerning, this is one of the main things we talked about. Um, just the fact that, well, I'll, I'll, that's where I'm going now. The more we grow in grace, the more we were going to grow in humility. Biblical humility is the recognition that everything God, everything good that we have or that we are, comes to us as an undeserved gift of God. Here's what Paul told the Corinthians. And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I don't care whether it's built into you. I don't care whether it's something learned. God gave you the ability to learn. He gave me an ability to, to play the piano. Uh, he's given me some other. He's given you abilities. Those are, God, those are undeserved gifts of God. You better be using them for his glory. Biblical humility is a recognition that apart from Christ, I can do nothing. And so I don't trust in myself. I trust in him. Biblical humility is always accompanied by a growing awareness of the depths of my own sinfulness. I read, I read for him an article, uh, yeah, I guess you'd call it, it's from a book uh, by J.I. Packer, and it has a bunch of attributes and, and it's talking about these attributes. And uh, on page 51, which I remember because Psalm 51 is one of my favorite psalms, but it's on page 51. The title is Holy Discontent. And here's the essence of it. If you have an orange and you put it on the floor down here, you know, we can walk by and say, yeah, that's an orange. What happens when we lift it up and bring it closer and closer and closer and closer to the light? All of a sudden, you can see what? The imperfections, and it's not this perfect little orange that you thought it was. Well, we as believers, as we get closer to God individually, I'm not talking about corporately, I'm talking about individually. As you grow closer to God, as you are being more conformed into the image of his son, which is where we're all headed, in that closeness, there are two things that we see immediately. Tyler talked about it two weeks ago. <laughs> what happened to Isaiah when he saw the holiness of God? Woe is me. Isaiah's a prophet. He knows what woe means. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Anytime God is encountered in his holiness, it lays man low. So, as you are growing in holiness, you're, you get, you, you're getting closer to God. The closer you get, the more you see his holiness. But what do you see about yourself simultaneously? Your unholiness. You cannot get closer to God without humility. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, Scripture says, tells us who the most humble man on earth was. You know who it is? It's Moses. Why? Because he spent an awful lot of time with God face to face. 
In knowing who God is, we get a real picture of who we are. So biblical humility is always accompanied by a growing awareness of the depths of my own sinfulness, along with a growing appreciation for the abundance of the grace of God shown to me in Christ. The psalmist puts it this way, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody. But he continues, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Oh my. As the pioneer missionary, William Carey had this inscribed on his tombstone. Tombstone. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. Do you see yourself as a worm? Helpless? You should. Biblical humility runs completely counter to this just predominant self-esteem teaching that has just flooded not only the church, but society at large. We're being told that at the root of our problems is the fact that we do not think highly enough of ourselves. For example, a brochure from a Christian treatment program with glowing endorsements from several well-known Christian leaders. Here's what it reads. Part of our success is found in the unique ability to target and resolve problems of low self-esteem. At the core of all emotional problems and addictive disorders is low self-worth. It is never the only problem, but it is so major an issue that if not dealt with adequately, one is kept from experiencing lasting positive results. Contrast that with John Calvin who wrote, Here then is what God's truth requires us to seek in examining ourselves. It requires the kind of knowledge that will strip us of all confidence in our own ability, deprive us of all occasion for boasting, and lead us to submission. Nothing pleases man more than the sort of alluring talk that tickles the pride that itches away in his very marrow. It's part of our fallen nature that desires to be made much of. Therefore, in nearly every age, when anyone publicly extolled human nature in favorable terms, he was listened to with applause. Because we all want to just think that we're great. Calvin goes on to say that those who assent to such teaching, they're deceived, and they are driven ultimately to uh, ruin Throughout the Institutes, which was his major work and his other writings, Calvin extols humility as the chief virtue and pride as the main vice of the human race. It's amazing how far we could have gotten off track in our day when Scripture so thoroughly confronts our pride and continually calls for us to humble ourselves before God and others. Well, third, Jesus confronts our sin of using people rather than loving people. This is verses 12 through 14. Jesus doesn't stop uh, with rebuking the guests for their sinful pride. He goes on to rebuke the host for his sin of using people rather than loving them. Now, Jesus isn't teaching that it's wrong to invite your friends and relatives to dinner. Rather, he's making the point that you're not being generous, you're not being loving, if you only invite people who can return the favor, especially if you invite the rich with the motive of the status or possible uh, advancements they may be, able to, may be able to provide you in the future. 
That's just plain old selfishness. You're inviting them to get something out of them. True ministry out of, a, out of Christian love, it serves and gives without any thought of return. It isn't manipulative, serving for what it can get out of it. As Christians, we should sub- serve others out of love of God first and love of man second. To go Jesus' way, you have to have your focus on eternity. Not on the rewards of this life. You have to believe that God, as as the writer of Hebrews says, is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, often there are blessings that come back on you in this life when you serve the Lord. That's not unusual at all. But often there's not any visible rewards here and now. You serve, no one notices. You give to help a needy person and you get ripped off. And they don't even bother to say thanks. One test of whether your motives are right in your service for Christ is, are you hurt when you don't get the recognition that you think you deserve? If that ever happens to you, guess what? You're not serving with pure motives. Another test is, what is your attitude toward the poor and the hurting? We see the Pharisees, they didn't care about this man with dropsy. They just didn't want Jesus to break their rules. If you're only willing to serve those who can pay you back or who might later be able to advance your cause, you're using people. You're not loving them. So Jesus confronts our motives for service. Any selfish motives in Christian service is sin. Now, we've all met people who don't take a shower often enough. It's hard to be around them because sometimes it gets a little stinky, right? Well, the same is true of people who don't use the Word of God daily to cleanse that crud of sin out of their lives. You've got to develop a habit of taking God's Word, letting it expose and scrub that dirt out of your heart. Don't read the Word with a thought, wow, my wife or my husband really needs to read this. Or, gee whiz, I wish my kids would take this verse to heart. Read it and pray, Lord, Confront me with my sin and cleanse it out of my life. Expose my religious hypocrisy. Show me my selfish pride. Reveal how I use people rather than love them. Charles Spurgeon wrote, My own experience is a daily struggle with the evil within. I wish I could find in myself something friendly to grace... But hitherto, I have searched my nature through and have found everything in rebellion against God. That's not, it, I hope you struggle with that. If you're struggling with that, then you're probably a believer. We all struggle with that. We have these natural tendencies. Uh, Galatians 5 tells us there's this battle going on between the spirit and the flesh so that you can't do the things that you want to do. So there's that battle. That battle's a good thing. But if Spurgeon had to confront his sin daily, do you think that maybe you and I need to confront our sin daily? And if we'll do it, we'll be repaid abundantly at the resurrection of the righteous. Let's pray. Father, again, your word has confronted us. That is part of its design, Lord, is to convict us and, and to show us where we fall short. 
Lord, uh, of your glory, short of obedience, uh, short of all the things that you call us to do. And so today we stand, uh, we should bow, we should bow the knee in submission to you as our God, as our Lord, to say, forgive us. Uh, Father, forgive us where we have fallen short. Forgive us where we have not been obedient. Father, um, do that work in our hearts. Maybe there's somebody out here that you're confronting with their sin for the very first time. Pray that you do that special work in their heart to open their eyes that they may see Jesus for who he really is. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, uh, confrontation with Jesus. Man, that's why you need to spend time. Uh, matter of fact, um, I believe it's John, Mar- John MacArthur. Uh, the vast majority of time on Sunday mornings, he only preached from the gospel. Gospels. Because you get confronted by Jesus all the time. And he preached on other books and what have you at night and Wednesdays and what have you. But on Sunday mornings, he always preached from the gospels. Because he wanted you to be confronted, Christian or non-Christian with by Jesus now that first confrontation uh, that's a big one that's where what's where God the Holy Spirit comes to you and says hey yeah you're in conflict with God you've never been made right with him sin is in the way you are trying to run your own life that is that is that is antithetical to repentance and faith and trusting on God you're trusting in yourself can't do that it will get you nowhere. We're trained to do that. Being brought up in the Western culture, we are, we are literally trained to do that from very early on. But that's not the way of Christ. The relationship with Christ is an interdependent relationship. It's not an independent. Uh, and it is to some degree dependent, but it is interdependent. We, have, we, we receive Christ. You recognize your need for a Savior that you cannot save yourself. Only the Holy Spirit can make that real, can make that come alive in your life. In your life, If that's happened to you, I encourage you, as you've heard me say many times before, don't run from it, run to it. That's the Holy Spirit simply knocking, saying, hey, listen up. He's talking to you this morning. It's serious business. It's the most serious business you will ever take care of. It's beyond marriage. It's beyond buying a house. It's your relationship with God. Have you have, do you have that relationship? Have you dealt with that confrontation, that initial confrontation with God and relinquished your rights and said, yes, forgive me. Make me your child. He'll do it. Maybe you need to do that today. If you're a believer, too many of us suffer from everything that we've talked about. The religious hypocrisy. Oh, boy. All of them. Uh, just, just like uh, um, whoever it was that said, Calvin said, you, sh- you know, the, the preacher should be the first. He should uh, fall down and break his neck before getting up in the pulpit and not being the first to allow it. Well, just in putting this together, every one of these I'm going, check. Not that I've conquered it. Check. Need to work on it. Check. Need to work on it. Check. Need to work on it. What is God doing in your heart this morning as a believer that says, yep, this is an area. You can't dodge it. You, well, you can. But it's going to lead you down a path you don't want to go to. Always run towards God, not away from him, even as a believer. I think that's one reason that David was called a man after God's own heart, despite the fact that he was a conspirator and murderer and an adulterer and some other things that weren't very good. It's because when he was confronted with his sin, with his sin, what did he do? 
He ran to the Lord, not away from Him. Let that be your heart as a believer this morning. Run to the Lord. His arms are open. He will help you deal with whatever needs to be dealt with in your heart. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.